Did you know that the events leading up to World War II actually were commenced by the Japanese in the Pacific, unlike the Germans in Europe, as is common knowledge? Hello, everybody. This is Peyton Clyden, host of the Major Battles of World War II, a podcast, bringing you the overview of the successes that the Axis powers had at the start of the war in Europe and prior to the war in the Pacific. This episode will focus on the events leading up to the start of the war in Europe and the Pacific, emphasizing the battles in the time period between September 1939 and April 1941. Although describing more of the early war successes of the Axis armies in the European theater, the unopposed expansion of the Japanese in the Pacific will also be highlighted and connected to events on the other side of the world. Using a lack of preparedness on the Allied side, along with the aggression and overall planning used in their military endeavors, the Axis powers quickly gained the upper hand even before the war started, dictating the affairs of the world before getting a major coordinated response to their superiority. To contribute to this lack of foresight on the Allied side, Britain, France, and the United States decided to not aggressively pursue the Axis violations of the treaties dictating international affairs after World War I, showing to these nations that their expansion of colonial holdings in Africa and Europe wouldn't be prosecuted relentlessly as they should have. The lack of a unified response emboldened the aggressive powers to keep up their imperialist intentions to the point where the world went to war. In this episode, I'll explain the expansion of Germany and Italy before and at the start of the war, examining their effects on European and African affairs along with the early imperialist motives and successes of the rising Japanese Empire. Prior to the start of World War II in Africa and Europe, Germany and Italy under dictators Hitler and Mussolini had motives of expanding their colonial holdings into these respective regions. As soon as Hitler, a World War I veteran of the trench warfare of the Western Front, became Chancellor of Germany in 1934, he decided to restore the might of the German military and pushed the nation out of the devastating Great Depression, while also breaking the debilitating Treaty of Versailles. After the defeat in World War I, Germany was humiliated by the harsh reparations and debilitating economic losses, encouraging the rise of a charismatic leader who promised to return to former glory like Hitler. Spending a few years secretly rebuilding the German military to pursue his desired imperial, imperial motives, Hitler finally completed a slight rebuild to back up his expansion and discourage an Allied response. In March of 1938, Hitler set set the ball rolling with the unification of Germany and Austria and the Anschluss, a term forbidden under the Treaty of Versailles. Describing how the German occupation of Austria went under the treaty... Describing how the German occupation of Austria went down, G.E.R. Gede, a British Vienna correspondent prior to the start of World War II, stated, It was an indescribable witch booze, Sabbath, stormtroopers, lots of them barely out of schoolroom, with carriage bells and carnbines. The only other evidence of authority being swastika brassards were marching aside, side by side with points, turncoats. Men and women shrieking or crying hysterically, the name of their leader embracing the police and dragging them, dragging them along in the swirling streams of humanity. Motor lorries filled with stormtroopers clutching their along in swirling streams of humanity. Mo- motor lorries.
clutching their long concealing weapons. Emphasizing that the Austrian people welcomed the German troops as liberta- liberators into their nation, Gedei shows that the Anschluss unification between the two German-speaking nations was generally supported and welcomed to maintain good relations in the region. Hitler used skewed data among both Austrian and German people to justify this movement, trying to prove Germany's resolve to get what it wanted in neighboring nations. Seeing that the European allies weren't willing to break up the peace, in Europe, Hitler annexed the Sudetenland, a German-speaking region of Czechoslovakia on the German border soon after the Anschluss incident in Austria, to take further advantage of this period of indecision. Britain and France determined that Hitler broke his promises of not continuing his expansion into neighboring territories, attempted to resolve this European issue, and continued to hopelessly keep the peace through a meeting with the German dictator and the other major powers in Europe including Germany's comrade-in-arms Italy in Munich, Germany. The Italian expansion into independent Ethiopia in 1935 was also attempted to be resolved by Britain and France. However, the desire to not go to war like World War I resulted in these nations getting what they wanted. In the corresponding Munich Agreement, Hitler and Mussolini emphasized that they both wouldn't invade any more territory, keeping the status quo to appease these dictators. Signifying that a landmark deal was reached, Britain and France believed that a deal was finally finally completed and war in Europe could be avoided. This shows that a lack of a strict and coordinated response from the Allies forced them to give up their power over European affairs in an attempt to appease Hitler and Mussolini to keep the peace, a situation that would never work in the end. Hitler decided to break his promises made in the Munich agreement only a few months later, occupying the rest of Czechoslovakia in February 1939, tightening their resolve when it became clear that Hitler wouldn't maintain his promises in the appeasement agreements, Britain and France saw their power in European affairs drastically disappear, forcing them to have to stand up to Germany's next move in Europe. By allowing the Nazis to take over both Austria and Czechoslovakia, the Western Allies gave the time and opportunity for Hitler to grow the size and capacity of the German military to stand up to the eventual declaration of war shortly after the start of their invasion of Poland. This time also gave Hitler the opportunity to coordinate and master the famed Blitzkrieg tactics of the war, giving the Allies difficulty in their attempts to stop him. This mistake established the course of the first two full years of the European theater. To open up World War II in the European theater, Hitler launched his long-awaited invasion of Poland. Deliberately planning to occupy this near neighboring territory to realize his goal of wiping out the Jewish people in Europe, Hitler had to rely on the help of the Soviet Union to eliminate and divide Poland among themselves. Doing something that was against their overall philosophy, Germany signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact to try to insecure Soviet cooperation in Hitler's plan. Before the German aggression and annexing both Austria and Czechoslovakia, Hitler had a, had a concentration camp system for domestic political enemies that included communists, the group that ruled the Soviet Union. Hitler stated that he was only working with the communists to realize Germany's interests in Eastern Europe, wanting to eventually strike against his enemy. This shows his continued disregard for promises made with his adversaries. In the early morning hours of September 1st, 1939, the German High Command set its plan into motion using a fabricated ploy as a reasonable measure. 
Showing his hate for the predominantly Jewish Poles, Hitler ordered the SS, Germany's police force, to have some of its members stage an attack on a border town wearing Polish uniforms. When these attackers were caught, the Nazis used this ploy to launch the planned invasion of Poland. Using the Blitzkrieg tactics for the first time in a major way, the German High Command quickly sent 1.5 million troops over the border supported by tanks and the Luftwaffe, Germany's air force. Destroying all the Polish aircraft on the ground, the Luftwaffe knocked down a major aspect of the defense set against the advancing army on the ground. In response to the massive invasion, Britain and France declared war on Germany on September 3rd, throwing Europe into war. As German troops swarmed across the nearly defenseless country, Polish troops retreated to the major cities like Warsaw, not having the necessary military technology to have a fighting chance. For example, Otto T. D. Tonchlus, a Pulitzer Prize winner who is a Berlin correspondent for the New York Times, states, With the German allies in Poland, September 11th, having hurled against Poland their mighty military machines, the Germans are today crushing Poland like a soft-boiled egg. The Germans have proceeded not only with might and speed, but with method, and this leads far to be the first war. To, to be decided, but not infantry. The queen of all arms, but by fast motorized divisions, and especially by the air force. With control of the air, the Germans moved forward, not infantry, but their tanks, with smashed Polish residents in the back. Hoschluss showed that the Polish defenders had no chance against the coordinated and well-organized German assault, emphasizing the complete and overall obliteration of the Polish nation by the mighty Blitzkrieg tactics. To make matters worse, the Soviet Union started, to, started its invasion of Poland on September 16th. As a result of the two massive armies attacking both the eastern and western frontiers, Poland surrendered on September 28th, dividing the country between the Germans and Soviets. Finally having the ability to capture all the Polish Jews, the Nazis divided the major cities into ghettos to make the situation easier to dictate. Establishing a precedent for what Germany would do to the Jews throughout Europe, these ghettos provided a glaring example of the goals that Hitler had as the war went on and how not valued these people were in German affairs. This is just the start of what was to come throughout Europe as Germany continued its expansion. After waiting for a few months for the situation in Europe to stabilize to an extent, Germany launched its next attack, this time on the neutral nations of Denmark and Norway, highlighting the surprise of the possibility of the Germans deciding to bring the, the war to neutral Scandinavia. William Scherer, another Berlin correspondent for the New York Times, describes, I hope I didn't put myself on the limb, but... From what I've heard this week, I wrote tonight in my broadcast. Some people here believe the war may spread to Scandinavia yet. It was reported from Britain, Berlin today that the last week, a squadron of at least nine British destroyers was concentrated off the Norwegian coast, and that in several instances, German fighters carrying iron received warning shots. Believing that the Swedish iron supply lanes into northern Germany were being threatened, Hitler wanted to capture nearby Denmark and Norway to consolidate his control over the region. 
Hitler had fears that his iron supply lanes were being threatened because the British were attempting to use Norway for its ports and resources to blockade northern Germany, a terrible situation that drained the German population and their will to fight during World War I. To keep the German military going and pursuing its enemies throughout Europe and North Africa, these supply lines had to be secured, according to the German High Command. In addition, the German Navy needed the northern fjords on the Norwegian coast to protect itself from the vastly superior British Royal Navy and prey upon northern shipping between the British and the Soviet Union, weakening both of these opponents in the process. On April 9, 1940, Germany launched its invasion of the northern reaches of the European continent throwing land forces toward Copenhagen and Denmark and amphibious forces at the Norwegian ports of Oslo, Sola, Narvik, Trondheim, and Bergen. Due to the weak initial state of Denmark prior to the German invasion, King Christian X immediately surrendered, sparing the nation massive damage and a heavy occupation. In Norway, on the other hand, Germany got a response from the RAF, throwing the amphibious attacks in the chaos as British aircraft descended on the weak, unprotected fleet. Afraid of the impoverished, improvised British response to their Norwegian landings, Hitler wanted to make sure that his northern flank could be protected in the end. When the German fleet left the amphibious troops on shore, warships of the British home fleet based in Scapa Flow attacked their weaker opponents out in open water, nearly destroying the entire invasion support force. This contributed to the lack of investment on a surface fleet by Hitler, turning to the production of U-boats instead. To spread fear among the German high command, the British put their own troops onto Norwegian soil at Narvik to aid the Norwegians in their defense against German attacks on June 7th, forcing the Nazis to focus on another more dangerous foe. However, when Germany finally launched its full-scale invasion of the Western Front, these British troops were evacuated to shore up the defense of France, leaving the Norwegians at the mercy of the German occupation. Although facing a stronger resistance from the Western Allies in its invasion of Denmark and Norway, the overall German military succeeded and learned some valuable lessons that were used in situations where the British actively defended a German onslaught. The blitzkrieg tactics engineered by Hitler were also further improved for the upcoming invasion of the Low Countries and France. A momentous change in the affairs of the overall action of the European theater the German invasion along the Western Front from May 10th to June 25th, 1940, resulted in the occupation of France by Hitler's armies and increased challenges the British faced as they stood alone. After the success of the German army and had an occupying Poland, action on the Western Front didn't happen as quickly as expected, creating a lull that was defined as the phony war. Although Britain and France continued to build up a series of defenses and plans of action, this German hesitation was also in the interest of the attackers, who had the time to organize and prepare their armies. This gave Hitler the opportunity to plan an important blitzkrieg invasion so that his armies wouldn't be bogged down as they were in World War I, which gradually drained men and resources that it could have been used in other sectors. Content with allowing the Germans to make the first move, the Western Allies sat behind the defensive fortifications on the Maginot Line. This proved to be a mistake because an Allied attack along the French border with Germany would have thrown that area into chaos, invalidating Hitler's decisions in the war. 
On May 10, 1940, Germany launches long-awaited invasion of Western Europe, launching 3.5 million men in three army groups across a 900-mile front, supported by 10 panzer divisions and 5,500 aircraft of the Luftwaffe. Opposing this massive attack were Belgian, Dutch, French, and British troops of an expeditionary force, including 900,000 Belgian Dutch troops, 750,000 British French troops supporting the Low Countries, over 1 million troops behind the Maginot Line, and up to 4,000 aircraft between all participating nations. German Army Group B initiated the offensive by attacking both the Netherlands and Belgium on the opening day of the battle, dropping paratroopers behind enemy lines to take over important pieces of infrastructure throughout the region. As the troops of Army Group B started the attack on the Low Countries, the British and French troops charged with reinforcing the Belgians and Dutch were finally able to enter the fray. Due to the respect of Belgian and Dutch neutrality among the Western Allies, the defense of the front wasn't as coordinated as it could have been, allowing the Germans to take advantage. This decision proved disastrous because gaps in the defensive front were exposed and filled by quick-moving German tanks, throwing the Allied troops into chaos. After completely mobilizing to defend the attack of Army Group B in the Low Countries, the main German attack in Army Group A launches invasion of France through the Ardennes Forest. Believing that the forest was impassable to tanks, the British and French didn't put a lot of troops and defenses in that area, allowing the Germans to break open the front almost immediately. Quickly after the Germans invaded both Belgium and the Netherlands, both nations surrendered, forcing their monarchies to go into exile. However, there was the accidental bombing of Rotterdam after the Dutch officially surrendered, causing a lot of damage to that famous city. Since the Luftwaffe didn't get the news that the Netherlands surrendered until it was too late, German bombers who had a mission to force surrender through terror tactics on civilians still did the dirty work anyway, suffering condemnation throughout the world. Meanwhile, the German attackers of Army Group A completely cut off the British and French troops defending the Low Countries on the English Channel coast, utilizing their quick blitzkrieg attacks on the ground to force retreat. In one special case, German tanks seized the port city of Dunkirk with British and French troops trapped within, forcing British civilians to come rescue them in a famed operation. Recalling his experiences as, as a citizen volunteer among the fleet of British vessels attempting to save Allied troops on the Dunkirk beach, sailor Arthur D. Devine remembers, When I heard the small boats of all sorts were, be, were to be used at Dunkirk, I volunteered at once. The, the evacuation went on for something over, for over a week. But to me, the most exciting time was the night before the last. But even before it was dark, we had picked up the glowing of the Dunkirk flames. The picture was always remained sharp etched in my memory. The lines of men's wearily and sleepily staggering across the beach from the dunes and the shadows. Falling into the little boats, great columns of men thrust out of the water among bombs and shell splashes. Describing the efforts that British citizens took to help save the Allied army stuck at Dunkirk, Devine shows the risks that he had to manage in order to successfully bring back troops from the encircled garrison. Although evacuating over 300,000 troops waiting on shore, this sudden boost in enthusiasm didn't stop the Germans from overrunning the rest of France. This forced the French government to also go into exile, allowing an Axis collaborative to gain control during the Nazi occupation. 
For the Allies, the loss of France within six weeks to the coordinated German onslaught proved disastrous, severely weakening the strength and resolve of the British military. With the occupation of France sealed, the Luftwaffe had air bases close enough to Britain to start launching air attacks and whittle away at the famed RAF. The tide of the war had definitely turned in favor of the Axis powers. Hello everybody, Peyton here. Right now, I'm going to give you listeners some insight on what is going to happen in the next episode of our series, The Turning Point of Our Progress. Throughout this episode, you have seen how the Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan have started to run rampant across Asia and Europe, easily conquering weaker and strong nations like France in the process. However, the aggression that these dictatorships have put in has caused disastrous consequences that has shifted the tide of the war for good. Bringing in the Soviet Union and the United States into the war on the Allied side through overconfident surprise attacks on their nation's borders, Germany and Japan especially have made their mission of world domination that much harder and virtually impossible. As a result, the Soviet Union and United States grew into a determined bunch that wanted to bring absolute revenge and destruction upon the power staging against them. The whole world was now at war, incorporating nearly the entire human population in one way or the other quickly slowing down and eventually forcing the slow retreat of the Axis powers from Asia and Europe, the Allied powers of Britain, the Soviet Union, and the United States helped end the threat fascism posed to the rest of the world, ushering a new conflict because of their cooperation. Now, let's get back to the events defining this episode and the episodes to come. Shortly after the occupation of France had been completed, the German High Command looked into preparing for the amphibious invasion of Great Britain and the chance for Germany to be the sole superpower of the European continent. However, for the Germans to be able to launch an amphibious assault on the British Isles, the RAF must be defeated to give the Luftwaffe air superiority on the battlefield. Without this air superiority, the combined forces of the RAF and the Royal Navy would destroy the fragile planned German invasion force and help turn the tide of the war into the favor of the Allies. On July 10, 1940, Germany launched its first major air attacks on RAF facilities and important factory complexes to deprive the British military from receiving its needed armaments. Immediately set to engage these Luftwaffe bombers and fighters were British Spitfires and Hurricanes, important members of the RAF's fighter command charged with defending the airspace of Great Britain. To successfully start its invasion preparations in Operation Sea Lion, the Luftwaffe had to first strike at the shipping and the Eng- that the English needed to keep the, their factory production going. This was the case because without the resources brought in from shipping the, from the British colonies throughout the world, more aircraft wouldn't be produced to fight the Germans. As this bombing operation started to drag on, equal numbers of British and German aircraft were being lost, with the British aircraft production outpacing the number of kills from the Luftwaffe pilots. Desperate to turn the tide of the air battle in favor of the Luftwaffe, Air Marshal Goring of the German High Command came up with a plan. In this phase of the so-called Battle of Britain, known as Eagle Attack, on consecutive days for two weeks, thousand aircraft raids were organized and sent into British airspace constantly to bomb airfields as well as the factories vital to aircraft production, hoping to exhaust the pilots of Fighter Command and the vital industrial workers to the point where Great Britain as a whole would be forced to surrender. Starting on August 13, 1940, Eagle Attack was launched, scrambling both radar operators part of the Chain Home Defensive Network charged with locating and directing RAF attacks on German aircraft, and pilots of fighter command. 
forcing continuous presence of aircraft over Great Britain to keep the population and pilots on constant high alert, Goring wanted to slowly tire out his enemy on the ground. With the proposition of keeping Great Britain on constant high alert, the British populace and pilots would make some mental mistakes that would cause them to lose the battle. German bombers and fighters, targeting number 11 and 12 fighter groups stationed in South and Southeast Britain, were pressured the most by these attacks, struggling to survive against the onslaught from above. After a few months, the situation got extremely desperate for number 11 fighter group, who was targeted the most by, Germ- by the German Luftwaffe. If the Germans only kept at it for a few more days, this air fleet would have been shattered, opening up the region for a dreaded invasion. However, when a German bomber accidentally missed its mark by hitting a part of London, the British responded by sending bombers at Berlin, causing Hitler to change the course of the air war by bombing all of Britain's major cities in return. Initiating a new phase in the Battle of Britain known as the Blitz, Hitler, in his fit for revenge, indirectly saved fighter command from being totally shattered. A participant in the new phase in the Battle of Britain, RAF fighter pilot John Maurice Bentley Beard describes one of his daily accounts of a German attack on London, stating, On we went wingtips to to left and right, slowly rising and falling. The roar on our 12 Merlin, drowning all our other sound, we crossed over London at 20,000 feet, seemed just haze of smoke from it, countless chimneys. I scanned the skies, the sky, and there, there they were. It was a terrific sight and quite beautiful. I could see the bright yellow noses of Mercifits, fighters, sandwiching the bombers, and could even pick out some of the types. Recalling one of his most memorable moments as an RAF fighter pilot, Bentley Beard emphasizes the challenges that he faced in front of him as massive waves of German bombers and fighters flew towards their targets in the center of London. As a result of giving the factories some time to build back some of their lost fighter force, Hitler's choice helped turn the Battle of Britain out of his favor for good, forcing him to have to deal with the foe unwilling to give up, even while when under siege by U-boats in the Battle of the Atlantic. This resolve proved to be the inspiration for the British to continue fighting and push the United States for more aid to strike back. While the Battle of Britain was in its most desperate phase for fighter command during the Luftwaffe's Eagle attack, Winston Churchill, the new Prime Minister of Great Britain after France was invaded and occupied, asked fellow democracy and freedom fighter the United States for some aid. Using the threat that the British people would suffer an invasion and occupation themselves without help, Churchill helped to convince President Franklin Roosevelt to advocate for a bill to get Americans involved in the defense of democracy. However, FDR faced a dilemma himself. Isolationists, or people who were against the United States going to war, had major influence in Congress. Even if the proposition somehow got passed, FDR was worried that the American aid might not be enough anyway to save Britain, making it not worth his hassle to support the besieged nation. As the situation in Britain started to get to the breaking point, FDR finally believed that he had to do something fast. Going to the congressional floor to propose a solution, FDR met some opposition from the isolationists, but ended up finding a compromise that everybody supported known as the Lend-Lease Act. The Lend-Lease Act 
entailed that Great Britain and eventually the Soviet Union, when it got involved in June 1941, would receive aircraft, tanks, and ships to fight the Nazis. However, they would have to collect this aid from American ports with their own ships. To highlight the specifics of this aid and the overall agreement, an excerpt of the Lend-Lease Act stated, Notwithstand the the provisions of any other law, the president may, from time to time when he dreams it, in the interest of national defense, authorize the Secretary of War. Secretary of War. The Secretary of of the Navy, or the bead of any other department or agency of the government to manufacture in arsenals, factories, and shipyards under their jurisdiction or otherwise procure to the extent which funds are made available. Therefore, or contracts are authorized by the time to time by Congress or both any defense article for the government of any country whose defense the president deems vital to the defense of the United States. Showing the powers that FDR had in regulating which goods and resources went to the British in their fight against the Germans, the Lend-Lease Act greatly increased the importance of the United States in the proceedings of World War II, even though the nation wasn't a belligerent yet itself. In addition, the United States asked Britain to pay off all of its American debts after the war because Parliament was broke from their involvement so far in the war. This proved satisfying for both sides, but especially in the American people, who believed that they were helping to fight the hated Nazis without actually going to war. This helped Britain survive to the point where the U.S. would enter the war and contain the Axis attacks in North Africa, proving to be another seesaw affair that the British military needed to win. Meanwhile, in the North African theater of the European War, the Italians were ready to attack the British in Egypt and begin their conquests throughout the Mediterranean. The alluring and vital Suez Canal connecting the Indian Ocean with the Mediterranean Sea was the main target, giving the nation holding Egypt the opportunity to branch off their control into the sea lanes of India and Southeast Asia. If the Italians were able to successfully occupy Egypt, Britain's control of the sea lanes linking India and the Britain with the British Isles could be threatened, losing the vital speed and efficiency of bringing vital resources throughout the Suez Canal. Britain would be left a wither on the vine, turning the advantage to Hitler in his prosecution of his planned amphibious invasion and Operation Sea Lion. From their colony in Libya bordering the Egyptian frontier to the west, the Italians were hoping that their 10th Army and aspects of their 5th Army would get the job done in surprising and handily defeating the British. Since the French in North Africa were still opposing Hitler and his powerful German forces even after the fate of France was sealed, most of the Italian 5th Army were still forced to defend Libya's western border just in case. For the invasion of Egypt, it was initially planned that the entire 10th Army would clog the coastal roads and not be exposed to the hot weather posed by the desert, while the 5th Army units would attack the interior with some Libyan colonial troops. However, because the British defenders were ready ready to defend and attack deep into the interior, these troops ended up joining the 10th Army troops attacking along the coastal road. Confident that this attack would succeed as a result of the main attention being focused on their homeland due to the threat that Hitler now posed on the British Isles, Mussolini didn't even bother to make sure that his troops had proper weaponry and air support. 
For example, before the attack on Egypt, Mussolini stated, Having definitely liquidated Britain's armies on the European continent, the war could not be assume unnavigable air and for us also continental character. It is the geographic and histori- historic order of things that the most diff- and that the most difficult and most far away theaters of the world were reserved for Italy. War beyond the sea and in the desert are. F- our fonts stretch for thousands of kilometers and thousands of kilometers away. Some ignorant foreign com- 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 commanders should take due account of this. However, during the first four months of this war, we were able to inflict grave navital air and land blows to the forces of the British Empire. Since Mussolini was so confident about the destruction that he can impose on the British, according to this quote, he didn't make sure that his troops were well prepared for the attack, a huge mistake that will cost the Italians in the end. The British were much more prepared for an Italian invasion than the attackers thought, building up to their offensive troop strength once Italy declared war on June 10, 1940. In three separate defensive lines, the British were prepared to oppose and force any Italian invaders to retreat using the Suez Canal as their motivation. This would catch the Italians off guard and endanger their attack. On September 13, 1940, the Italian invasion of Egypt began with a good start, breaking the first offensive line relatively easy at Sidi Barani with huge air support from the 5th Air Fleet. The British second line of defense at Es Saloum proved a little harder to break, facing fierce resistance from stronger positions and more British reinforcements. Frontal assaults didn't work effectively. However, a flanking one did, forcing the British to retreat to Alam Hamid. By September 15th, the Italians were looking like they might actually successfully defeat the British and gain control of the Suez Canal, but Italian weaknesses were beginning to show. Rapidly overextending themselves in the early gains of the attack, the Italian and Libyan troops ran out of supplies and were slowing down. In addition, the 5th Air Fleet was facing more coordinated responses from the RAF, bringing their attack air superiority into question. Without this air superiority, the Italians on the ground would be exposed to severe airstrikes that would limit their effectiveness. By September 16th, the British were able to recover and launch their own counterattack forcing the Italians back across the border into Libya. Failing to bring Egypt into their fold of control, the Italians lost this vital opportunity and now have British troops attacking Libya, threatening to take this colony as well. As a result, Rommel's Africa Corps will have to be sent in to save the day, incorporating Germany into the North African campaign. The Italians will once more try to attack in the Mediterranean and recreate the Roman Empire, this time in Greece. To seal off the rest of the European continent for good, Hitler decided to send German troops into the Balkans to complete his desired southern flank. Completing the work that Mussolini failed to realize, Hitler at the same time consolidated his influence over Europe and gave himself room to expand further east into the Soviet Union and south into into the African continent. On October 28, 1940, Mussolini decided to invade Greece from Albania to create a new Roman Empire. 
Although managing to succeed in the early phase of the operation through the catching of the Greeks by surprise, their quick recovery and counterattacks pinned the invading Italians back and forced them to retreat. The Germans became so engaged in the battle that they the Greeks became so engaged in the battle that they actually pushed the attacking Italian troops all the way back into Albania, conquering a third of the nation soon after entering on November 14th. Encouraged by the early Greek successes in pushing back the Italians, Britain decided to send some of its troops fighting the Italians in North Africa to Greece to pursue the continued attack on Albania. As a consequence of the mobilized British troops sent into Greece, the situation in North Africa began to open up for the Axis forces, allowing them to push further into Egypt. This decision as a result almost became a disaster for the Allied powers, risking the loss of the vital Suez Canal in the process. Seeing that his Italian ally was facing failure against an inferior opponent, Hitler decided that he needed to get the Balkan situation under control before his invasion of the Soviet Union. To get his invasion plan going, though, Germany needed some more reliable allies in the region that could help him in his upcoming operation, choosing Bulgaria, Hungary, and Romania as his candidates. Fearing that a feud between these nations would get in the way of their cooperation, Hitler organized a summit in Vienna to discuss territorial claims and disagreements. With rivalries close to his growing empire, Hitler needed to settle this problem before Germany gets involved in another unnecessary battle. In the corresponding Vienna Award, the issue of the Transylvania Territory was settled, giving Hungary the northern piece and Romania the southern one. With the war between Bulgaria, Hungary, and Romania settled, the German High Command could finally focus on its invasion of Yugoslavia and Greece, launched on April 6, 1941, using 24 divisions and 1,200 tanks. Hitler included Yugoslavia as another piece of his invasion target because... Since the government in favor of supporting Britain's actions in the Balkans replaced a pro-Axis one, that obstacle needed to be removed to guarantee compliance from that nation. Without this compliance, the Germans' power in the region could be undermined and overthrown. Completely destroying Yugoslavia by April 17th, Germany used its brutal blitzkrieg tactics to level the capital of Belgrade and the rest of the nation in a similar way as revenge. Although being completely wiped out by the German Attacking Germans relatively quickly, there was some partisan resistance from the local population. For example, Stasha Seton, a native Yugoslav who decided to return to her native country to fight the German occupation, explained, Once at our post, our, our small group, the Gang of Ten, as we refer to ourselves, walked the villages from dusk until dawn in groups of twos and threes, sleeping wherever we could find space. We would watch British and American planes fly from North Italy to Germany, counting them in the morning as they made their return trips. Once or twice a week, they would crash in a suburb near Biograd, not Moru. The villagers were hesitant at first, but I persuaded us, but I persuaded us to all to go and help these men. What the hell? Guys, let's go. Describing the aid that they had to provide to the Allies to keep them fighting in the Balkans, Seton outlines the vital work that they did to contribute to the war effort. Like the Yugoslavian army, the Greeks also suffered a, suffered a quick, quick collapse against German troops, coming in two armies from neighboring Albania and Bulgaria. 
As a result, the two advancing armies' quick work on the Greek defenses, the invasion army in Albania, got their retreat cut off on April 9th, forcing them to fight the superior German attackers without reinforcements. In addition, the British Expeditionary Force sent to shore up Greece's soldiers were cut off and forced to evacuate from Athens in the face of German attack. Scrambling away so fast that much of their heavy equipment was left behind, the British troops lost their one advantage that they relied on to check the Axis attacks, leaving them defenseless against the paratroopers soon invading and occupying Crete. In the end, Greece surrendered to the Axis armies on May 11th, giving Germany air bases in which to strike British troops fighting in North Africa. This pressure, along with German reinforcement, allowed the Italian armies to drastically threaten the destruction of British forces in the region, a huge possible economic and tactical loss. Finally, the Japanese in the Pacific were continuing their expansion into Southeast Asia, threatening colonies of the major European powers and their valuable natural resources. Prior to this new aggression from the Japanese Empire, troops were quickly sent to occupy Manchuria in 1931 and China beginning in 1937. Using their previous colony in Korea as the springboard for their invasion of Manchuria, Japanese troops were able to come in as a surprise, easily brushing aside the weak Chinese resistance in the area. When the Great Depression started with the U.S. stock market, stark, stock market crash in October 1929, the Japanese people were hit extremely hard, losing access to needed natural resources from the European powers and the United States instantly. Without these natural resources, the overall Japanese economy collapsed relatively quickly, forcing the government to look at imperialism to sustain themselves. As a result of this desire for resources, Manchuria was invaded out of desperation. When the conquest of this resource-rich region was completed, the Japanese government created the puppet state of, of Manchukuo to create a more efficient and humiliating colonial me mechanism. Waiting a few years to consolidate its its imperial control, the Japanese government's hunger for imperialist expansion grew along with their hatred of the Chinese, their rival since the first Sino-Japanese War. For example, Liu Lu Lengsheng, a Chinese civilian living in Manchuria prior to the start of the Japanese invasion of China proper, recounts a disturbing scene of the brutality the occupiers imposed on the conquered peoples of Asia, stating, Some died from starvation and some illness. Some were beaten to death, while others died working in places such as the coal mines. The ones who suffered from of the cruelest deaths were those stabbed to death by Japanese soldiers. Bionites. Showing the hatred that the Japanese had toward inferior peoples they occupied, Lin Cheng points out the atrocities that the occupiers placed so that they could gain control and cooperation within the subjected population. Using these types of methods and their relations with the Chinese, the Japanese brutally repressed them so that, so that they would know their status when, within Asian affairs. When finally ready to go attack the Chinese, the Japanese came up with a ploy to warrant an all-out invasion. Sending troops in, into a disputed piece of territory around the Marco Polo Bridge, the Japanese government wanted to force Chinese troops to fire the first shot so that they could start their attack. Succeeding in meeting this goal, the Japanese Empire sent 2 million troops into China to commence the invasion on July 7, 1937. Immediately after the start of the invasion, Japanese troops gained a lot of ground in China, facing not a lot of coordinated resistance due to the ongoing Chinese Civil War. 
desiring to not let the communists take over China and ruin his progress on the nation, nationalist leaders Chiang Kai-shek focused too much on the civil war and the early stages of the Japanese invasion, allowing his real enemy to gain a vital tactics tactical advantage in their control of port and transportation hubs. This allowed the Japanese to start strangling China before they even started to fight back in force. Other the so-called so-called Second Sino-Japanese War would continue on to 1945. Early Japanese gains allowed them to dictate this affair and have the ability to expand into Southeast Asia. The first desire was French Indochina, a European colony made up of the modern-day nations of Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam that was weakly defended due to the fall of France earlier in the year. Determining from aerial reconnaissance that the Chinese were being supplied from this region, Japanese leaders saw this as an op opportunity to throw a decisive knockout blow in the Second Sino-Japanese War and finally end it after three years of fighting. On September 22, 1940, Japan finally decided to invade French Indochina after the French governor, Jean Decaux, provided an unsatisfactory agreement for a bloodless takeover. Quickly running through the colony without facing much opposition, the Japanese won the battle by September 26, gaining control of the major infrastructure and civilian population. Eventually using this population as a slave labor system, the Japanese occupiers were hoping to get as much out of the region as possible before starting their major campaign against Britain and the United States. In response to the Japanese occupation of French Indochina, FDR decided to put an oil embargo and freeze financial assets to the Japanese within American financial markets to demand that the Japanese leave the colony. Deciding that the United States needed to be weakened across the Pacific to gain more natural resources to compensate for their lost ones, the Japanese planned for a series of attacks on December 7th and 8th around Southeast Asia, eventually pulling the U.S. into a truly worldwide conflict. Overall, the Axis invasion advance against the unprepared allied nations and colonies around the world forced all the major nations controlling international affairs to be drawn into a new conflict. After losing its ally France within one year of the German invasion of Poland, Great Britain's survival around the world looked bleak, being threatened by Germany and Italy in Europe and the Jap Japanese in the Pacific. Either barely hanging on for now, Britain will get some divine intervention from the Axis powers that brought in the Soviet Union and the United States to the Allied side. The tide will finally start to turn ending the expansion of the Axis powers and forced their retreat, saving the world from brutal domination.